You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Israel can do no wrong. We stand by Israel. We right-wingers. I'm impersonating a right-winger right now. Um, Israel, a democracy in the heart of the Middle East, actually a really great place for gay people as opposed to everywhere else in the Middle East. You got to give Israel that. But one of the sort of bizarrest elements of kind of American politics and culture right now is this right-wing fundamentalist Christian fetishization of this foreign country, the 51st state, right? Israel. If you watch the Republican presidential debates, primary debates in 2011 and 12, what you saw practically every debate was every goddamn Republican up there swearing fealty to Israel and supporting their friend Israel and accusing Barack Obama of being insufficiently Israel loving and supporting. And Netanyahu doesn't like Barack Obama. Therefore, Barack Obama has to go because Netanyahu has veto power on who our chief executive is. And what's so fascinating about this love of Israel and Israel can literally do no wrong. Whatever Israel is for, Michelle Bachman is for, is Israel has socialized medicine. In this roaring debate about Obamacare, the you know particularly during the Republican presidential debates, they would pivot from rimming Israel to slamming Barack Obama because socialized medicine and tyranny and freedom and how the government having its hands on your health care will destroy your freedom, your freedom to die of a toothache as a 12-year-old boy did in this country. I wrote about him in my book, American Savage, uh, for lack of access to basic health care. Died of a fucking toothache. Proud to be an American where at least you know you're free to watch your children die of toothaches. And I, was, I thought this was really funny when I you know, was writing my book and I was writing about Obamacare and I thought, I wonder what Israel's got. And Israel, which could do no wrong, has socialized medicine. You know who else has socialized medicine? I believe I've mentioned this before on the show. Vatican City. If there are two countries that can do no wrong in the eyes of the religious right, Israel and Vatican City would have come high on the list together until, of course, Pope Francis came along and started talking about the poors. And who gives a fuck about the poors besides Pope Francis and Jesus? But until Pope Francis came along, you know, Israel and Vatican City could do no wrong. Both have socialized medicine that cover everything. Except, of course, Vatican City's socialized medicine program does not cover birth control because ultra boys cannot get pregnant. Anyway, other Israel news in the last couple of weeks – Israel has adopted one of the, quote, most liberal abortion laws in the world and will now provide government funding for abortions for Israeli women between the ages of 20 and 33. And guess who has nothing to say about this? The religious right. American conservatives, Republicans who believe that Israel can do no wrong, who will defend Israel first in every case. Radio silence. Radio silence on Israel's new abortion laws. Just as there was radio silence from them before on the fact that socialized medicine will destroy freedom in America and Israel is free and a democracy and we support it and, you know, if their logic applies in Israel as it applies here, they shouldn't be free in Israel because they have socialized medicine. Socialized medicine is Stalinism and Nazism and fascism and tyranny because the government doesn't want to see your 12-year-old kid die of a fucking toothache. In other abortion news, 
More abortion laws have been passed in the last three years, more laws restricting access to abortion than the previous entire last decade. These Republican governors and Republican-controlled legislatures all across the country that were swept in in 2010 have enacted scores of anti-abortion laws, making access to abortion more difficult to get, particularly in Texas and other shithole states. Your Blue Island's excluded, of course. Love you, Austin. So if you're thinking of sitting out the 2014 midterm elections, which you're going to hear me talk about a lot, which are coming up this fucking November, remember what happened when liberals and Democrats, people of color, young people, queer people sat out the 2010 midterm elections. We got these Republican-controlled legislatures and Republicans in governor's mansions that pushed through all these new laws restricting access to abortion, in part because we sat the election out. We enabled this attack on women and women's reproductive freedom by sitting out those elections. Republicans, old people who tend to be Republicans, they go to the polls every goddamn election. One of the slams, rightly so, on liberals and progressive voters, we do not go to the polls off years. We go to the polls for big, sexy elections. We go to the polls when we can vote for Barack Obama or stupidly, not to pick at a decades-old scab now, vote for Ralph Nader. We'll go to the polls. We'll run for president as a green, as a liberal and a progressive, but we won't run for school board and we sit out off your elections. We can't do that again. We do not have that luxury. We must go to the polls this November in this off year and keep the Senate in Democratic hands and rest of the House away from John Boner and the rest of the douchebags and idiots in the House. Speaking of all those laws passed restricting access to abortion in so many states, we were all very upset, rightly so, by the states that passed laws requiring transvaginal ultrasounds be performed on women who wanted to seek abortions. And the theory from religious right, the theory from Republican legislators and governors was that if women were forced to look at ultrasounds of their fetuses, they would decide not to have an abortion. Well, the studies are in now because so many of these laws were passed in so many states. The studies are in. The biggest one published in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, one of the largest research projects looking into ultrasounds and abortions to date, finds that, and I quote from the write-up at Think Progress, the vast majority of women who seek out abortion services have already made up their minds. Looking at images of an ultrasound does not sway them. 98% of women who are seeking abortions, who had to look at images during their ultrasounds, had their abortions anyway. It doesn't work. People who are seeking abortions have made up their minds to have those abortions. So these women are being violated, sometimes traumatized, needlessly and against their will. And we can be mad, 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 mad at the Republican legislators, anti-choice activists, Republican governors, at all the idiots who make these laws happen. But let's remember to be a little mad at ourselves too. Let's remember to be a little mad at our friends who sat out the election in 2010, mad at ourselves if we sat out the election in 2010. If you didn't vote, you helped to make this happen. Don't make it worse in 2014. Get registered and get ready and get out there and fucking vote. Or this shit will get worse. We will see more of this. This is our chance. This is our opportunity to stop this shit finally in its tracks. 
in November, this November. I realize it's only January, but we are going to hammer away at this. Not more than once a month because the tech savvy at risk youth will not let me talk about voter registration in November and midterm elections more than once a month, but at least once a month. I'm going to be after you guys. I'm going to be after you guys to register. I'm be after you guys to vote. After you guys to be after your friends and family members to register and to vote. No excuses. And now your calls. Hi, I'm a 21-year-old male from a large Midwest city. I have identified as queer and bi and gay at various points since my late teens, but still find myself hooking up with women. I just got out of a long relationship with a girl I met here. Um, I wonder if I'm the kind of person who just likes the idea of like homosexuality or like being gay or if I'm actually further along the sexuality spectrum than most of my peers. My question is more like, how do I explore it? Like I don't drink and most of the activities I hear about or am made aware of are in bars or in clubs. And I just kind of no longer have that ability. I assume that if you've heard of podcasts, you've heard of the internet and you know that there are dating options uh, and venues that are not bars and clubs. There are apps. There are apps like Grindr and Tinder and Dudes Nude and a lot of places that you can go to find a guy where you don't have to drink and other people aren't necessarily drinking. And you know where else you can go and you don't have to drink and not everyone is necessarily drinking? Bars and clubs. You can actually go to a bar and not have a drink. Uh, I used to do that a lot. In my 20s, I barely drank, uh, but I still went to bars and still met people, some of them not drinking, just like me, uh, and made connections. But what are you? Are you just the kind of person who likes the idea of homosexuality or being gay, even though it sounds as if you have never actually had a same-sex experience? Are you further along somewhere on the homosexuality spectrum? Or are you that rare breed of straight guy who is so not homophobic that you confuse that with being open to homosexual experiences. And maybe you are so not homophobic that you are open in concept to a homosexual experience. You know, homophobia is so perceived to be hardwired into so many other people's heterosexual identities that a person who lacks homophobia, a person without a homophobic bone in his body, no homophobic impulses, no gay panic, nothing – I've met them. I've met some of them in, in, over the course of my life. I've met straight guys who thought that they might be gay or bi because nothing about gay sex or gay people squicked them out or terrified them or made them uneasy. And so they figured that that must mean that they were open to gay sex or gay themselves or at the very least bisexual. But they had actually no interest, no desire that, that, they, that they ever acted on. They never made it happen for themselves and it wasn't a coincidence that it didn't happen for them, that they didn't make it happen for themselves. They actually at the end of the day weren't interested in same-sex activity, erotics, gay relationships, gay anything. But you know, because that's standard in so many straight guys to be a little – even if you're gay supportive, even if you're an ally, a little panicked, a little freaked out by gay sex, that they confuse that lack of panic, lack of squick, lack of freak out as 
somehow pointing to a desire for gay sex. And it wasn't. It was just no homophobia. Where are you? I, I actually can't know. I can't pop your brain open and dig through your gray matter and <laughs> find your desires and identify them for you. If you want to act on it and see if you are indeed capable of responding to a same-sex encounter, a same-sex partner, bars and clubs aren't your only option. Get on Grinder. It can be a little dehumanizing, so be careful out there. But bars can be a little dehumanizing too. Be careful in there as well. Good luck. Hi, Dan. My name's Teresa, and I want to have sex with a friend of mine who is HIV positive. We've known each other over 35 years, and we haven't had sex with each other in about 10 or 15 years. I want to have sex with him, but I want to do it safely. Can you please advise me? Well, there's good news. Condoms. Good old condoms, correctly uh, used, offer 98, 99% protection against HIV transmission. So if you and your friend use condoms, you'll probably be fine. 98, 99% chance that you will not become infected. Uh, that chance is even better if your friend who is HIV positive is taking uh, meds, if he's seeing a doctor, if he's in treatment, if he's on protease inhibitors and drug cocktails. Uh, if his viral load is undetectable, the chance of him infecting you is even smaller because there's little or no virus in his system or in his semen or in his blood. If you really want a whole other layer of protection, there is now a drug that we can throw into people who are HIV negative, who are sexually active with people who are HIV positive or people they don't know the serostatuses of. Uh, it's called Truveda and there's sort of an ongoing debate in the gay community because the recommendation from some doctors and uh, some AIDS orgs is that all HIV negative, sexually active gay men should be on this drug uh, potentially for the rest of their lives and it lowers your chances of becoming HIV positive or, or getting infected with the virus uh, even if you are being inconsistent or uh, about condom use or not using condoms. So those are your options and I really do think that the odds of you becoming infected, if you just stick with condoms alone and use them correctly, go online, go to the CDC, go to Planned Parenthood and read about how to use condoms correctly and consistently. If you use a condom, just a condom, you don't have to drug yourself, you will be good. You will be fine. I used condoms all through the 80s and I made it and I survived in the early 90s. I think you'll be okay with condoms particularly if your friend has an undetectable viral level. Enjoy. Hi, I'm a 28-year-old male from Texas. For almost four years, I've been in what I call a monogamous relationship with my girlfriend, where we'd have our special guest stars, but it was always the both of us involved. I've been making plans to propose to this girl as she is my closest to be rounded up to one, and she's aware of my intentions. Recently, she asked if we could try a triad relationship with one of our guest stars, and I agreed to try it to be GGG. Not long after it started, I felt that the relationship was a bit inequitable, and I said it should end. Unfortunately, she grew a pretty strong emotional attachment to this girl. We have kind of hit that long-term relationship slump where everything kind of hit the rut at about the same time. She says she doesn't feel the in-love-with feeling with me anymore, but still loves me and wants me to be her husband-slash-life partner. We both realize this might just be a temporary slump, and that it might pass. But she says she wants to try poly, 
with only other females, and more specifically, the former guest star for the duration of the slum, so that she can still feel the in-love feeling, and that we might get through this phase. I love this girl very much, and want to spend the rest of my life with her, but I don't know if Polly is really the solution, and fear what might happen if we never come out of the slump, or if the other relationship would be a hindrance to that. I really want to salvage this relationship. So, any ideas, Dan? I'm not sure this relationship is salvageable or should be salvaged uh, unless this woman, your girlfriend and potential fiance and potential life partner, stops confusing the in love feeling with the new love feeling. What she's feeling for this new person in your life, for your special guest star, is that first rush of uh, you know attraction and bliss and that's a different kind of feeling than stable, loving, committed, consistent – passionate still, hopefully love for someone, that kind of commitment. It's, it, it, they're different. And if she understands that new love feeling as love and what she feels for you as something lesser or, or deficient or an indication that she can't commit to you at the same level, a life with her is going to be a nonstop parade of her falling in love with other people, constantly seeking that new love energy, a new love charge, and you standing on the sideline feeling as if you're there to – I don't know what else it is that you're doing for her. There to provide the dick, there to uh, you know, help balance the checkbook, there for the daily grind of life and always her looking at you and thinking, oh, it's too bad that we're not really in love anymore. I mean I love him but I'm not in love with him like I'm in love with my – 13th brand new girlfriend in a row who I'm so passionately in love with. That passion can be sustained over time and it can sort of roll in and out like the tide. You can be with somebody, they have that passionate new love sizzle. It can diminish and it can come roaring back. I've been there, I know. But to be with someone who doesn't understand what these dynamics are actually about – in a long-term committed marriage that's open and poly, I think for you and your self-esteem and your sense of sort of emotional security and safety would be devastating to constantly have her falling in love with someone else and regarding that as an indication that there's something wrong with what she shares with you. I don't think you need that. So either she needs to wrap her head around, I think the polyamorous call it, New relationship energy, NRE, and the difference between new relationship energy and love. If she can't wrap her head around that, don't marry this bitch. Hi, Dan. I'm a 19 year old gay Canadian. Um, with a little bit of teenage drama for you. So, when I was 15 years old in grade 10, I made a best friend um, who I got closer and closer and closer with. Um, and eventually I started to have feelings for him and you know I started to spend every day with him and then we would video chat at night so I began to be a little obsessed I guess and then I sort of had this utopian vision of us both coming out to each other and coming out to our families and then we you know would together forever and whatever halfway through grade 12 he got this girlfriend, and I went batshit crazy. I tried to ruin his relationship, and we were still friends, but I was telling lies and gossiping and trying to break them up and doing all these terrible things. And eventually, at the end of the year, at the end of high school, I came out to him and told him that I had these feelings 
for two years and, and was obsessive and told him everything. And we sort of gravitated away from each other because there was just so much baggage in the relationship. Now that it's two years later, um, I'm a second, sec, second year in university, he started talking to me again, and I'm not sure if it would be appropriate to start a relationship again. I wanted to get your thoughts. I guess the only question about whether it would be advisable to start up a friendship again with this dude that you used to have this crush on and that you treated so badly when he, the straight guy, went and got a girlfriend, which is a perfectly legitimate straight guy thing to do. Uh, the question is, are you still fucking crazy? And if you are not fucking crazy and hopefully not, you sound perfectly sane and reasonable and rational, then you should start up a friendship with this guy again. Uh, and it should begin with an apology and say, you know, I was 15 and a little out of my mind. Um, and like a lot of 15-year-old gay boys, there weren't other out gay people for me to direct my sexual energy and attention toward, my romantic energy and attention toward. And I became sort of obsessed with you in an unhealthy way and I see that now and I apologize for how I treated you and how I treated your girlfriend. Uh, and then when he accepts your apology, then you can pick up with a friendship. That is a doable thing so long as you stick that apology dismount, which I'm sure you can do. You sound like an articulate, reasonable, sane person now. Probably not so sane then, but you were 15 then and the hormones were terrorizing you and raging through your body and you can both shrug it off and have a laugh about that um, and pick your friendship up where you left it off. Speaking of homosexuals, in Canada and elsewhere, one of the questions that constantly gets asked about the gay is how much of the gay is out there? How many people, what percentage of the population is gay? Kinsey famously in the 1950s put it at 10%. Um, that figure has been disputed. There have been other studies, the Chicago study, Pew Research, that have put this, the number at, at far less, under 2 percent or 3 percent. Um, the religious right gloms onto those low numbers in an effort to argue that I guess you have to achieve some sort of percentage of the population in order to qualify for full civil equality, which would come as news to the Jews because – the lowest estimates for the percentage of people in the population who are gay are higher than the estimate of people who are Jewish and yet you don't see the religious right these days running around arguing that Jews are not entitled to their full civil equality. What percentage of the population is gay? It's a hard question to get answered because people tend to lie, particularly when a lot of these studies were done. You know, The Chicago study famously in the early 90s uh, it was still – legal in many states to fire people uh, who were gay. Uh, gay people had no protections for their love or their relationships. Gay people often could lose their children. That's still the case in many states. It's still legal in a majority of U.S. states to fire someone for being gay, lesbian, bi or trans. So when you get a phone call in your home and it's somebody from the government asking if you are gay, hello, I'm calling with a government-funded study here. We just want to find out, uh, are you a gay? A lot of people are going to lie. Not tell the truth. So the estimates, the low estimates, many gay rights activists and epidemiologists and statisticians believe are inaccurate, are lower than they ought to be. There was a really interesting article in the New York Times opinion section early in December by Seth Stevens Davidowitz called How Many American Men Are Gay? And Seth dug down and did some research and came up with a percentage and he joins us now by phone to give us his estimate and I think it's a really solid one, maybe the best estimate out there of how many American men are gay. So what percentage of American men are gay, Seth, do you estimate and how did you arrive at, at your percentage? 
So I estimate that about 5% of American men are gay, and uh, the estimate was basically using a whole variety of sources. There's not kind of one, uh, there's not kind of one smoking gun uh, that says the, the percentage, but they all kind of converge around a relatively similar uh, number of about 5%. And the percentage included uh, Facebook data, Google search data, anonymous and aggregate Google search data, uh, polling data, census data, etc. And you... You think these numbers are better than the old studies, the Chicago study, the Pew study, where they just like randomly called people, got them at home and said, hey, are you gay? Yeah, exactly. I think what this what this study shows and I think some other research is also pointing to, which is perhaps not surprising, is that there still are a lot of men who are in the who are deep in the closet. And that includes uh, not telling some of these uh, sources such as polls uh, that they are gay. And not telling also spouses. What you found was in a lot of red states, the, the top Google search for is my husband blank is is my husband gay. Exactly. Uh, so it, it was I think uh, it, it, was the, it, was, it was the top question uh, that wives have about their husbands. And uh, in tw- 21 of the 25 states where this search is most frequently asked, uh, support for gay marriage is below the national average. Blows my mind. Now, one of the things I've always argued about sort of the gay experience is that we are migrants and refugees, that if you're gay and you're born in a shitty place because we're spread sort of randomly throughout the population. So if you're gay and you're born in some shithole red state hostile to gay people or some shitty section of a blue state where they're hostile to gay people, you're going to move. You're going to go somewhere better. And I perhaps have to revise that or stop saying that because your research says that that ain't so, that there's no – that the percentage of gay people in California is no higher necessarily based on your research than the percentage of gay people in Mississippi or Alabama. Yeah, I think there is there is some migration but it's a, it's a small factor relative uh, to kind of the closet. So it seems like – and again, you know, there's no perfect source for this but I was looking at Facebook data where they have you know, where people are born and where people live now. Uh, and also some other data sources. And it seems like there is migration, but it's a small factor. Uh, and actually, you know, the predominant uh, kind of way that people who are born in, as you call it, a shitty area, uh, gay men born in a shitty area, it seems like, uh, you know, a, a, lot, a lot more of them uh, respond by staying in the closet than by moving to more uh, friendly territory in the United States. And you argue in your piece in the New York Times that this creates a lot of misery because what you have is a lot of gay men doing what the religious right tells them to do or tells us to do. A lot of gay men marrying women. That's exactly right. And, uh, and living a life in the closet. Marrying and, women. And you see, I, I also, I mean, it kind of this study just used a whole bunch of different digital sources, uh, to, anonymous aggregate digital sources to kind of get a sense of, of get contemporary gay life. And what it seems to be, the other thing you see is that there tend to be more uh, Craigslist ads for men seeking men in uh, parts of, the, you know, per capita and parts of the country uh, where intolerance is high. So, you know, mar- so, so uh, yeah, exactly. In these areas, more uh, gay men marrying women and uh, kind of seems lo- looking for uh, uh, casual encounters on Craigslist uh, rather than uh, more long term relationships. So it definitely moves things in, in not, not such a great direction. Uh, this is something that really has to be thrown into the face of the religious right more often, that persecuting gay people and promoting this kind of homophobia doesn't just warp and destroy gay people's lives. You're not just hurting gay people. You're hurting straight people, often straight women who wind up in relationships with men who cannot love them, are not sexually attracted to them. 
and who then go online in Mississippi and Alabama and other shitty – not shitty states generally, shitty for gay people specifically. Alabama can be lovely in its own special short bus way. But they go online and search, is my husband gay? Not because they're thrilled that their husband is gay, not because they're happy in their marriage, but because they're fucking miserable. So homophobia and this anti-gay bigotry that, that leads so many gay men to live lives in the closet just doesn't hurt gay people. Nobody wins, right? The gay, 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 gay men, obviously, they're probably, you know, that's, you know, I think the biggest losers as far as, you know, living kind of a secret life. But as you say, straight women lose uh, because, you know, a lot of them end up uh, in relationships or, mar- or married to gay men, straight men, you could say lose because uh, there's more competition maybe for the for the, for uh, their for straight women. So you know, so it's 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 not a it's not a good situation for anybody. And you know, no, and there's just it, it creates a you know environment of dishonesty, uh, which is you know which is not is is not I think very healthy. So uh, yeah, I think that's that you definitely do see that in the, in this research. So am I an asshole because when I hear about gay people in this day and age who are living in the closet or staying in a place like Alabama or lying to some woman and getting him to marry her, I think I think you're an idiot. Like I, I just don't – like my heart broke for and I had so much sympathy for closeted gay men in the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s and older gay men I met when I first came out who I would do the math and go, OK, when I was 20, they were – you know, it was 1950 and it had to suck for them. But I think now like – you're not missing out on gay life or the opportunity to live openly and with some integrity. Uh, you're opting out of that. There's a, there's a space and a time and a place now for people to be gay, for you to be you, and you're not doing it. What's wrong with you? Well, I, yeah, I think that's that's. Uh, I'm not going to. I don't want to. It's uncharitable. It's it's uncharitable. I think. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I talk. I actually through this research, I I contacted a lot of people through. You know, I talked about in the piece of a therapist in Mississippi who works with closet men. Some of them were older, so maybe you are a little more understanding of them. But uh, you know, and I do think that things are and will change. You know, they're they're not there yet, but they will. You know, particularly in, in parts of the country uh, with with less tolerant attitudes. But you know, a, a lot of his information too. You know, you might say, well, it seems so obvious. Just move move to San Francisco. You know, I talked to one. A closet gay man. He thought that all men were just attracted to men, and it was just something that you hid. He didn't even know that that was that meant that. Oh, you're you know that means I'm I should pursue a relationship with men. That that's what I'm interested in. Uh, he, uh, th- this makes me you know different from from uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, other men. So your pe- your piece made a big splash, and it was uh, spoken about everywhere. What, what sort of response have you gotten, and, and how many people have you heard from? Mostly, I think a positive response. Actually, one of the more interesting responses. Uh, of a bunch of of closet gay men in the South asked for the therapist number uh, <laughs> I talked about. Uh-huh. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I think you know that 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 was kind of I think the most the most interesting was yeah people's individual stories because that kind of puts more texture on it when people are talking about you know their experiences. Uh, some women who have recently just found out that their husband is gay have have, ta- have talked to me and kind of their their situation their pain as you said that's another part of the story that's not really talked about and we don't really think about but. A lot of women, you know, devote their a good portion of their lives to men who aren't interested in being in a relationship with their gender, and uh, you know, the pain of that situation is enormous. And they were kind of telling me their story. So a lot, the human rights campaign is starting a kind of outreach in uh, part, parts of the country. So they're interested in, in kind of this research and how they can build that program. Up. Uh, that was another res- uh, comment. That was another res- uh, response. Is this a line of research you're continuing to pursue? Possibly, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think uh, a lot of people ask how you get interested in this, and to be honest, it, 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 it kind of came accidental because 
I've been interested more in just big data and mm-hmm. that this idea that there are lots of areas of life that like have been so hard to research that these new digital data sources are opening up a lot of research. Uh, and what's really important about uh, what really made this research possible is the anonymity of it. That, right, exactly. People are going online and they can risk being their true selves as opposed to getting a call from some stranger asking them about their sexual orientation because it's it's Craigslist. It's anonymous and they yeah, don't and, have to tell them. Some searches, pornographic searches, again, anonymous aggregate data where you kind of can be more honest. So uh, I think that that's kind of more the area that I'm interested in is that what else can we learn about society when we kind of look at these digital data sources, if we use anonymous aggregate digital data sources, I think like a lot of research has been really hampered, not just on gays, but just on all kinds of areas. Uh, my next piece is actually going to be in about a week about uh, gender biases based on uh, kind of anonymous aggregate search data. So that's going to be another one where like, you know, when surveys, you don't kind of, in surveys, you don't often, you often don't get the truth. Uh, so kind of all these different areas, I think I'm going to look uh, more into, but I am kind of ex- definitely want to pursue this research a little more or at least hand, hand it off to, be, to other people because I kind of feel like I spotted this thing that was surprising to me. I grew up in you know the New York area and now I live in, in uh, the Bay Area and, uh, and I went to college in the Bay Area and lived in Cambridge. I kind of lived in very uh, urban liberal environments and you know my aunt's gay like it's no big deal like a lot of my friends are gay no big deal like I just assumed that kind of that was the way things were now uh, so I kind of got a very disturbed uh, upon doing this research that it does remind me a little bit of the race issue where like a part of the country is ahead and a part of the country is behind. And I think there is an obligation, I feel like uh, from people in more liberal areas and, and progressive areas to realize that, uh, that a lot of, you know, young, young people are not uh, in, in, in such a favorable situation. Seth Stevens Davidowitz, uh, the piece is How Many American Men Are Gay in the New York Times on December 7th. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 26-year-old female living in New York, and I recently uh, met up with a guy at a bar. I guess I should preface it by saying that I'm only looking for something casual right now and very interested in you know, just kind of no strings attached hookups. Uh, so I went with a friend of a bar and met a guy who seemed to be good enough <laughs> to do the job. Uh, we got to talking a little bit, um, went back to his place, and I went down on him. You know, we undressed each other, got really hot and heavy. And then after he came, he just kind of sat back and said that that was all that he wanted to do. Um, and I was confused and asked him, okay, well, that's great. I enjoyed that, but, you know, I want to get off too. So can you do anything for me? And he just really refused and said that he really wasn't interested in going down on me or, you know, fingering me, which is really disappointing. Um, but surprisingly, like the first time that's really ever happened, uh, I've always had, I guess, very considerate and selfless partners in bed. Um, so I guess my question is, how do I go about being in a casual hookup situation um, and guaranteeing that I'm going to be able to get off too? You know, I'm definitely interested in making sure that my partner feels pleased, but I don't, I don't really know. Is it something that I should kind of say up front? Like, okay, so do you go down on girls or, you know, if I should ask that before we even get back to their place, I'm totally fine 
um, and feel pretty assertive asking it. I'm just not really sure what's proper etiquette. Something you need to know about men, uh, in addition to some of them suck. Some men are assholes and selfish shitbags, right? And maybe this guy was one. But something you need to know about men is that a man losing interest in sex after he comes isn't some sort of you know patriarchal crushing male conspiracy. Um, it's actually hardwiring that a man after orgasm, hormone prolactin – is released into his system. It suppresses dopamine and it makes it kind of impossible for him to have an orgasm again and it causes him to lose all interest in sex and messing around. Now, a good guy, a decent guy can come and fake it, can come and just power through the – it's called the refractory period when he can't get hard, when he can't come again, when he's probably thinking about going to get something to eat or going to sleep. Also, the refractory period, the prolactin, makes a guy sleepy. So the guy like nodding off after his orgasm, also not a conspiracy, also not the patriarchy oppressing you. It's chemicals. It's biology. It's the body. It's organic. Um, but most guys who are decent as the guys you've been with in the past are decent and kind and giving and game will just sort of – you know push their way through the refractory period, make sure that their partner gets off too. Some guys don't and can't. So what you need to know going forward into NSA hookup land, in addition to the fact that when you have no strings attached hookups, you are signing up to be with people who figure they're never going to see you again and aren't under any obligation to treat you well generally. Not that all people who are engaged in NSA hookups are shitbags who will treat each other poorly. My experience uh, of NSA hookups was the opposite. For the most part, a few men excluded. Uh, what you need to know is going into those hookups, like you're going to have to advocate for yourself. You're going to have to suggest that perhaps knowing what you now know about men and their orgasms and what prolactin and the refractory period are going to do to them, that maybe you should come first because you'll still be hot and bothered. You'll still be interested. You'll still be rolling. Your first orgasm isn't going to cause you to lose interest in sex. A woman's first orgasm spikes her interest generally in more sex and more orgasms. So you push his face into your twat, you tell him to get you off and then you will get him off and get yourself off as you get him off that time and you keep it going. But you suggest you – it's an NSA hookup. Just lay it on the line. You want to be with me? Great. I will fucking – I will suck your dick so hard. I'm going to get spinal fluid in my mouth. I am going to drain you in places that you have never been drained before. But first you're going to eat my pussy. First you're going to make me come and then I'm going to go down on you or whatever else on you and I am going to finger myself and I'm going to have a second or third orgasm while I give you your one sad, pathetic, disabling little boy orgasm. Hi, Dan. My fiance and I are really turned on by the idea of people watching us while we have sex. But when we went online to look up legitimate webcam sites or anything like that, it was really hard to find any information. So we thought you might have some input on how to get started in that. Jumping on the phone with us today to help me answer this question, Chris Mukarbel. He is a documentary filmmaker and the creator of the new HBO series Sex Now, which is a reimagining, a reboot of the classic HBO show Real Sex, which we all watched late at night after our parents went to bed on HBO. Uh, Sex Now explores new ways that people are meeting and fucking and doing it uh, in the internet and technology fucked up era. Chris, thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us. Now, the first episode of Sex Now focused on camming. So why did you decide to focus on camming uh, for the first episode of Sex Now, the, the real sex reboot? Um, you know, camming is a huge industry, and uh, it's kind of interesting the way it's taken over 
previous forms of uh, in real life sex work, like uh, stripping or peep shows. Um, so it was just a nice example of how uh, so much of the sex industry has actually moved on. And how technology has transformed it. Yeah, exactly. And that was something that we're really uh, focusing on with the show is how much things have changed since the original sex was on. Uh, so much of uh, the sex industry actually happens on the Internet. And, uh, you know, if you're going to make a show about sex culture, you're also making a show about technology. So recently in Seattle, you know, we had a, a peep show for many years. It was famous, uh, The Lusty Lady, and it closed. And I b- understand, I believe, The Lusty Lady also closed in San Francisco. And these were kind of sex biz institutions, and now they are gone. And do you think it was camming that killed those peep shows and others? Uh, you know, I don't think it was specifically camming. I think that in so many ways, uh, internet technology has just changed the way people uh, look for their entertainment and sex entertainment. So in the same way that, you know, the internet has changed uh, relationships and people will like maybe, you know, hook up on Grindr rather than cruising in the rambles or, you know, in the forest or whatever. It's 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 all part of the same um, cause and effect. And I think that with camming, um, you know, there's an opportunity to... Uh, you know, participate in a more liberated form of sex work. Some, you know, an industry that traditionally slanted towards men or the paying client, you can now cut out the middleman and essentially with a camera and uh, an internet connection, uh, bring your, you know, sex entertainment directly to uh, to the viewer. And it, it does so, as you, you showed in uh, the first episode of Sex Now, in a way that really empowers the performer and the, the, the cam worker. Some people call them cam whores, which isn't very polite, but empowers them in a way that, you know, working in a peep show or any other kind of stripping or sex work in the past didn't because they're in control of who they allow to watch. Yeah, and that was what was so fascinating uh, for me was the fact that they're essentially crowdsourcing sex work. You know, they don't need two or three hundred dollars from one client, which really puts the power completely in the hands of the client. And you know, you're at their mercy in so many ways. If you just made one or two dollars from hundreds, then uh, you know it doesn't matter if somebody's being rude and you have to block them forever because there's still hundreds of other people watching you. You know, you really have a lot more control in that situation. So, do you have any advice for this caller about her and her boyfriend's desire to get? into camming? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if it's something that they want to do, uh, it, it's fairly easy to sign up. You know, StreamMate is probably the biggest hub. You know, you can you can eventually create your own client base and have your own website, but it's really it's really best to start out with these hubs because they already have a lot of traffic and you essentially just uh, pay to participate and be featured on their homepage. Um, so, yeah, you can just go to the website and at the bottom there's typically a, you know, sign up uh, for models. Um, and uh, it's it's a pretty straightforward way of signing up. You know, there are also great cam forums, and I, I would also recommend uh, checking those out and just getting some insight into like what other people's experiences have been. And what was the name of that hub again? It's called Streammate.com. Streammate.com. Uh, so, what's coming up yeah. from Sex Now? How many episodes are in the can, and what what are, what are the shows in the future going to be about? You know, I'm actually interviewing uh, the founder of Grinder um, in a few days. Uh, so I'm really excited about looking into sex apps and the ways that people are now hooking up, uh, the way that geolocating has affected uh, the hookup, where, you know, it's not the sort of random experience, hopefully meeting somebody in a bar, although obviously there's a real loss and that's uh, something that's changed significantly is the gay bar scene and Grinder has really uh, affected that. Um, but the way that, you know, these apps allow people to either be more discerning and select who they want to meet. If you're living in a really rural area, it's hard to meet people in person and uh, it can 
like ideas about relationships and sexuality, you know, within however many miles radius. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting how it's changing uh, the hookup. Hey, thank you so much. Chris Mukarbel, he's the creator of the new HBO series, Sex Now. When's the next one on? Uh, we're not sure. They're going to play this episode uh, pretty regularly for the next month or so. Great. Chris, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about something that happened to me last night. The guy I started dating, he invited me to a New Year's party, and we have a pretty sex-positive relationship. Um, lots of kink. We're pretty open about that. Anyway, the New Year's party was a small, intimate thing family member of his was having. Um, went into his brother's bedroom, kind of started making out a little bit. Um, I bit him hard on the lip. That's something that I do. Something I really like. Some guys like it, some guys don't. He flipped out on me. He told me to leave. I said, I kind of thought he was kidding, kind of joked. I was like, well, you don't want to sex with me now? And he was like, no way. Get out kind of threw me out of the apartment almost. Turned his phone off, I suppose, because I've called him a few, more than a few times and you know, went straight to voicemail. I'm really confused. Hurt, for sure, but also just completely not a clue what happened here. I'm confused how it is that you're confused about what happened here. You bit him, and it pissed him off, and he asked you to leave. You should apologize to him, perhaps via text or letter since he's not taking your calls, and ask him what it was about that particular sort of lunge at a kink that freaked him out or upset him so much and assuring him, of course, you will never ever do that again and it was an honest mistake uh, and based on your past kinky escapades, you didn't think that it would be a violation or in any way upsetting to him and you are, of course, very, 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 very sorry. This can happen. You know, somebody can feel like they have a physical rapport uh, and they know someone well enough to like bust a move and they bust a particular move that upsets that person greatly or freaks that person out. Someone might have a thing for holding someone down or putting their hands over their head and they've been with somebody a bunch and they've rolled around and it's, maybe it's been a little aggressive and then they bust out that move. I'm going to hold you down and that person might have been held down at some point in their life during a very unpleasant sexual encounter, perhaps a non-consensual sexual encounter and that is too much and it fucking pisses them off and flips them out and it was an honest sort of boundary pushing, envelope pushing blunder on the other person's part. And an apology is in order. So call the dude and apologize. I didn't think in the context of our past kinks that biting would be a problem. Obviously it was. Sorry. And then see what he says. And if he says, fuck off, leave me alone, then it's over. There's nothing we can do about it. Hi, Dan. Well, I guess as a really sexually open person, I never thought I would call you, especially over something that sounds so simple. But I have found myself vaguely confused over something my new boyfriend has mentioned. Um, I've always been incredibly open to anything that anyone says turns them on, which is why I'm really surprised that I don't know what to do about what my new boyfriend has told me he's into. He is not exactly as sexually open, and when I ask him what really turns you on, he kind of shyly, under his breath, mentioned something about dominant women you can spit in my mouth, <laughs> which just sounds a little weird to me. I'm totally fine with doing it. I just don't know how to go about it. Like, am I supposed to, during sex, say, open your mouth and just spit in his mouth? What exactly does he mean when he says that? I don't know how to go about 
doing it, but I'd love to do whatever it is that turns him on. So if you could help me figure out how I'm supposed to do that or go about doing that, that'd be great. So how hard is it to spit in somebody's mouth? He's not asking you to like suspension bondage with him or anything where you have to go take classes and learn safety techniques and, and how to tie all those crazy shibari knots. He just wants you to spit in his mouth. And I think that's what's so weird is that it sounds weird. Like even my girlfriends that I've talked to are like, it, it's so bizarre that it would almost be an easier thing to hear to have him say pee on me just because we hear that more often. I've never heard spit in my mouth before. <laughs> I've heard it before. And, you know, there's a lot of spitting these days in porn. People have said there's a spitting suddenly became a thing in porn a couple of years ago and there's been a lot more requests for it. But in S&M, it's kind of common or BDSM, Dom Subplay, uh, a display of dominance. And you will see it in a lot of SM porn where the, the top perhaps while the bottom kneels will open their mouth and then spit into their mouth from, you know, two, three feet above them and just let it drop into their mouth, which is crazy when you think about it, because when you make out, when you roll around having perfectly vanilla sex, you're ingesting a lot of each other's saliva, but somehow delivering that saliva with that bit of distance and with the, you know, the symbolism of spitting being something degrading changes the dynamic in a way that for some subby guys is really hot and really erotic. So I think all you got to do, it's unfair of him to like mumble it and be shy about it. But a lot of people have a really hard time when they first open up about their kinks because maybe he's broached the subject before in the past with other girlfriends and been shamed or rejected. Or maybe, you know, he's never actually said it to anybody and he's really nervous and tense because he's straight and, you know, straight people kinks are the mountains, right? For gay people, kinks are the molehills. Telling people you're gay, that's the mountain. Telling people to spit in your mouth, that's comparatively easy compared to telling your mom you're a cocksucker. Telling your boyfriend to spit in your mouth is nothing. But for him, it's the mountain and it's terrifying and he told you and you ran and told your girlfriends, which is probably part of what he was worried about. <laughs> so all you have to do now well, is – he doesn't like, know I told him so. Well, hopefully he doesn't listen to this show. All you have to do now <laughs> is like say, OK, let's try this. Let's do this and – say is this how you like it done and try it in the most obvious way which is just like have him lay down on the bed on his back and open his mouth and let a little bit of saliva fall from your mouth into his mouth not snot not loogies just spit <laughs> but it is it is a very dominant almost like is it a humiliation kind of thing to want someone to spit in your mouth yes yes it's de it's degrading so it should be very Aggressive-ish? No, you don't, you don't have to perform like some professional dominatrix who's been nailing this. Like you can be inexperienced and tentative until you figure out exactly how it is – until you build a certain amount of confidence dominating him. Go ahead and be who you actually are in that moment, which is a little tentative, a little nervous. This is new for you too. Be playful. Be upbeat. But you don't have to – you know, one of the things I think sometimes people when they're asked to dominate can be nervous about is am I going to perform dominance correctly right out of the gate? Am I going to be a superstar, Mistress Matisse-style dominatrix right out of the gate? You don't have to be that. You don't have to have performance anxiety about it, right? Be chill. Yeah, I'm, I'm just worried it will be more weird than sexy. <laughs> well, you never know until you try. And it will probably be, feel more weird than sexy the first time. Until you grow a little more comfortable with it, until you see what his response is, 
You know, it would be weird to pee on him that first time too. But if you peed on him and it like <laughs> so turned him on that the sex was amazing after you peed on him because he was just so cranked up, you would get comfortable peeing on him quick because there'd be a big payoff for you, right? Yeah. So you'll probably get comfortable spitting in his mouth pretty quick because there's going to be a payoff for you if this is his ultimate fantasy. At least he'll okay, be. Well. At least he'll be. He'll be so grateful. He also might be so crazy turned on. That the sex that sort of rolls on out of that experience is going to be awesome for both of you, not just for him. Okay. Well, of course, I knew you were going to just tell me that I just had to do it. Well, you do have to do it. (laughs) And let let go of the nerves. You know, the first time you do some sort of varsity-level sex act, you can be inept. People tend to get hurt when they pretend they're not inept, when they pretend they know what they're doing when they're not they don't know what they're doing. Not that you can hurt somebody spitting in their mouth. But when it comes to like other kings like bondage, somebody's worried, you know, I'm going to be dumb and I'm going to tie you up, but I really don't know what I'm doing. And because I'm blustering my way through this, I'm not going to ask you if you're comfortable or if that's okay or if that hurts or if it's cutting off your circulation because I, I, want, I don't want you to know what we both know, which is I don't know what I'm doing. And then somebody gets hurt because there's no communication because somehow people have it in their heads that it ruins the dominance of the moment if we communicate, if I if I. Ask after your comfort. I'm not dominating you. You can be dominant and say, is this how you want it? You fucking sick little pervert like this. This is how you want me to spit in your mouth. You sniveling little toad like this. You can like be inept and also be dominant and enjoy. Okay. And then give us a call next week. It's Friday. Give us a call this weekend and let us know how it went. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. Random question for you. What percentage of the population would you reckon is kinky? I realize it's nearly impossible to answer that because the definition of kinky is not clear and everyone would have their own definition or self-identify as kinky based on different things. But what I mean is people who have a fetish and who I would say more than half of their sexual activity centers around this fetish and that that fetish needs to be fulfilled in order for that person to feel sexually fulfilled. I don't mean just people who are being GGG or being wild and adventurous and trying kinky things out or occasionally like to have their butt slapped or tied up and blindfolded sometimes. I don't, I don't really consider that kinky. I, I mean really someone who has a fetish that absolutely needs to be fulfilled for their sexual fulfillment. What percentage of the population is that, do you think? Have, have there ever been any studies or surveys done on that, or is there any official number out there? I'm, I'm just curious, and I would have no idea um, what to guess for that. So just wondering what you think, or no. Thanks. Bye. Jesse Baring is an author, evolutionary theorist, recovering academic, and I think he is, in America, the fearless and peerless sex writer of our age. Uh, he's also a regular Savage Love guest expert. He's the author, also most recently, of Perv, the sexual deviant in all of us. So, Jesse, uh, you've spent, I don't know, a couple of years researching kink, pervs, uh, paraphilias. Is there a percentage? Is there a number that we can give people when they want to know what percentage of the population is kinky? Or are we all sexual deviants? I think we are. I mean, depending on how you define the word deviant, of course. But, um, you know, the answer to that question that, that she asked is, is a very difficult one, actually, because we can't really arrive at a, um, a, a very specific number. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, she's right that, um, you know, defining the word kink in, in any sort of meaningful sense is very difficult to do. 
it sounds like she's talking more about a uh, a paraphilia, and literally translated that is love outside of the norm. Um, and here we're talking about lust outside of the norm, really. It's a clinical construct. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I had to venture a guess, I would probably say something on the order of, I don't know, maybe 8 to 10% of the population. And that would be... Right, and what that means... Know, that, for- Wait, but what that means when you say paraphilia and eight percent of the population, those are people who cannot become aroused and be and sexually respond in the absence of the you know high heels or fur suits or cream pies or piss play or balloons or clowns or sneezing or whatever else they're hardwired hardcore paraphilia is. These aren't just people who you know are kind of into bondage or S and M and are kinky and sexually adventurous. These are people who require yeah these things yeah, so in order I, to become you know, aroused. When I hear when I hear the word kink. I suppose, you know, kink, kink is more of a colloquial term. It's not a clinical term. But when I hear the word kink, I think more of a sort of an aphrodisiac. Um, this enhances sexual arousal. So, uh, so you know, for instance, you know, I'd like my partners to be mute in bed. You know, lots of people like dirty talk, but I like my partners to be quiet <laughs> in bed, which is kind of the opposite. I don't like them bound and gagged. Um, that would be a paraphilia in its own right. But that, but, but that is a good uh, way to keep them quiet. It is, yeah, and I and I, but I don't need that to get off. You know, I don't necessarily have to have a mute partner. It, it enhances my arousal, but it's not something that I necessarily need. What she's talking about is, um, you know, a requirement uh, that 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 allows the person to arrive at orgasm, and that is the definition, really, of a paraphilia. And one of the reasons that it's so difficult to get a precise number is because of the human imagination. You know, we might be having relatively normal, you know, as we define that term, sex. But the person in their mind is fantasizing about, um, I don't know, having sex with a horse or having, you know, having feet flying in their face or having sex with an entirely different person, maybe somebody of the opposite sex. So what's happening in a person's mind is not necessarily translated to the actual act of copulation. So they could be getting off from that fantasy stimulus, um, which is completely different from their, you know, the real world, uh, what they're, you know, what they're having sex with. Or who they're having sex with. Which goes to the point that most people, even with sort of hardcore paraphilias, are able to be sexually active and sexually respond in quote unquote normal circumstances thanks to their imagination. So there are not, there are people out there who are into very specific fetishes, foot fetishes. Uh, one of the people that you talked about in the book that I thought was so fascinating was a swim cap fetishist. People are into yeah. these things. Uh, and you know, having those things around would make the sex really awesome, but they can be sexual without those things around. So the percentage of people, you know, there's two different percentages we're talking about: the percentage of people with paraphilias and the percentage of people who are so dependent on them that they can't be sexually responsive in their absence. Right, and I think actually, you know, that that could be something that that we're going to be seeing more of because of pornography. We're not really, you know, I think the new generation is not necessarily growing um, accustomed to or actually having some sort of um, any sort of meaningful experience with simulation or fantasy or imagination um, to call, you know, to sort of culminate in their minds um, these these erotic fantasies that allow them to arrive at orgasm. They ne- they they definitely need that visual stimulus to arrive at that type of um, you know to to get that satisfaction. So uh, we could be seeing some you know changes in that percentage as a consequence of technological innovation. Jesse Baring, the book is Perb, the Sexual Deviant in All of Us. Clearly more research is needed in this area, Jesse, if we can get these percentages, because what is what is fact without a percentage to attach to? We have to have a number. Yeah, and absolutely. But, you know, one of the problems, I think, is going to be also that, you know, people are reluctant because of the stigma attached to having, um, you know, non-traditional sexual arousal uh, interest. 
you know, people are going to be very reluctant to share their particular uh, fetish or, uh, or kink. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hey, Dan, this is Jeff from Chicago. Got a jealousy question. I've been uh, just recently started dating a girl about six weeks ago. Really like her, met online. And the question is, you know, we both were into swing and blues dancing um, before we met. And now that we have met, I tend to see those as threat threatening things that I'm not comfortable with her doing. And I don't like this reaction of mine, but I want to deal with it in the right way. We have gone together as a couple dancing a few times. And I noticed myself distancing emotionally a little bit when I saw her dancing with other guys. So question is, is this something to get out ahead of and right away just go to the bar and work on it and just throw myself into it? Um, or is this something, this type of jealousy thing, better better left uh, down the road a bit once we're more comfortable with each other and then start venturing out again? So when you say you want to deal with this in the right way, what do you mean exactly by that? Well, I guess the want to deal with it period is the thing, you know, wanting to want to approach it and get comfortable with, you know, sharing someone with more people and whatever kind of context, you know, dancing is one of the major touch points of it. But Okay, but dancing, d- dancing ain't fucking. And if what you're worried about is that, you know, oh, she's dancing with some other people that she might want to fuck other people. Well, she does want to fuck other people. <laughs> you know, do other people might want to fuck her. Other people do want to fuck her. Those are just, that's bedrock. That's just settled those aren't questions. We all want to fuck other people. Other people all want to fuck uh, other people. She's with you. Do you trust that she's like into you and dating you and isn't going to fuck other people? Even if they yeah, want to yeah. fuck her? And even if she wants to fuck them, she's not going to? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, it's dumb animal-based. Uh, yeah, it's dumb animal-based behavior. Exactly. You see other women you want to fuck, right? Right, right. You go out dancing with her. You dance with other women. That, If circumstances were different, if you were single, you would want to fuck. Right, right. But you don't. Right. Because you're with her. Right. So why can't you credit her with that same leap that you are making, right? That, oh, yeah, she's dancing with that guy. That guy's hot. You know, if she wasn't with me, she might want to fuck him, but she's with me. And we're leaving. We came together. We're leaving together. And I'm not threatened by that dude because, because not because of who he is, but because of who she is and who we are together right now. Right. Yeah, and I think I do credit her with that. It's the yeah, it's the dumber, baser, less intellectual, more you know, seeing seeing that visually represented in front of me. There's a guy that would want to fuck her, obviously, and then he knows the other way around. It's like you know, hits me in the stomach a little bit. What you need to remember, and what might help you turn the corner on this, is that you know when our partners flirt with other people that they're not going to fuck, that energy that the other person stirs up in them redounds to our benefit that energy when she turns away from that guy and comes back to us right when when your girlfriend turns away from that guy that she was dancing with and comes back to you or my husband turns away from the guy he was dancing with and comes back to me i get the (laughs) blowjob right i get i get the sex i get i benefit from all that sexual energy that was created in that moment Right, absolutely. And so you should, yeah. in, in a way, maybe it would help to think, you know, I shouldn't really resent that guy because we, you know, the, you haven't known this girl for very long, right? Right, a couple months. Okay, so if this turns into a long-term relationship, 
passion, that, that, that new relationship energy we talked about earlier in the show, that passion, that spark, that can diminish over time. And one of the things that when you're in a really long-term relationship revives that spark and revives your passion for each other is watching somebody else hit on your partner. Watching other people want to fuck your partner makes you look at your partner and go, yeah, my partner is really fucking hot. It, it, it reignites that spark. So you guys, by dint of this you know, hobby of yours, swing dancing, you've built into your relationship this, this ability to always, you know, whenever you guys feel a little like on the low side, libido diminished or, you know, on the, you know, ebbing, you guys can go out dancing and other people looking at you like they want to fuck you. Other people looking at her like they want to fuck her. Other people dancing with her like they want to fuck her or dancing with you like they want to fuck you. Then you guys are going to look at each other and go, we're hot. You're hot. I'm hot. Let's go fuck. So this is something that you need to just think differently about that jealousy that it arouses in you because it arouses something else as well and something that will benefit and serve this relationship if it does indeed turn into a long-term relationship. But you have to, you have to squash this. You have to stomp on one thing here, which is that like petty jealousy, which, which always strikes me as just fucking crazy because – oh my god. Well, look at her. She's dancing with that guy like she wants to fuck him. And you know what the answer to that is? Yeah, she does want to fuck him. Yeah. We all want to fuck everybody that we think is hot. So she's dancing with that guy like she'd like to fuck him? Mm-hmm. She is because she would like to. But you know what? She wants to fuck me more. Yeah. And so she's going home with me. And if she, if that guy turned her on, awesome. She is going to Fuck the shit out of me later. Thanks to that guy. I should light a little candle after we're done for him. <laughs> so the answer isn't isn't to hold on till we feel more stable and then try out this dancing thing. It's just go dancing now. Go dancing now and enjoy it. Or maybe wait. You know, maybe take a month or two off the dancing because right now it's very tentative. Right now, you guys are just getting to know each other. Right now, you could be easily replaced because you guys aren't committed. You know, you aren't that entangled yet. Maybe if there's a little bit more entanglement, it won't seem as threatening. Uh, emotional and social entanglement, it won't seem as threatening when there's some other guy auditioning right. through swing dance to be her sex partner, right? Exactly. So, so yeah, maybe, that was my main question is how long to wait until I try those, those waters that, you know, upset me a little bit, but I can wait a month, get used to. Wait a month, wait a month or two. Tell her why you want to wait a month or two. Like, you know what? Right now, this is kind of freaking me out. In two months, I will love it. But right now, let's like, mm, just you and me. Got it. And then, and then, and just, and then, when you feel that jealousy rising in your soul, just the other part—you know—we argue with ourselves in our brain, or at least maybe I, I do. I, maybe I'm crazy because I have conversations in my head where I argue and reason with myself. When that, when you feel that jealousy rising up in your soul, go, shut up, shut up. This is good. Yep. Even this feeling of jealousy is good because it is going to inspire me to fucking fuck the shit out of her later in a way that makes her understand and appreciate how good we are together. So thank you, Guy, for stirring this passion in me. Thank you, Guy, for cranking her up. Now let's go home and fucking fuck, 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 fuck. That sounds nice. It's actually a good thing. It's a good thing to go out on the town with your partner and see other people want. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've been there, and I, I know that's a place that I want to get to. It's just, you know... So I feel myself pulling back because I don't really care to dance with other girls right now, and she really wants to dance with other guys. You know, it feels like a disconnect, and it's like, well, <clears throat> triggers the dumb, the dumb base energy. You know. Mm-hmm. 
You're smarter. No. You're smarter than that dumb base monkey shit. That's just monkey shit, and you're smarter than the monkey shit. <laughs> so give it, give it a month. Go dancing. Yep. Sounds like a good answer. Have fun. Great. Thanks, Dan. Okay, so the woman who said that her man drinks Red Bull and vodka and then goes all night long. Dan, I think that the Red Bull of that equation kind of tripped you up and you needed to just blow right by to the vodka, which is, I suspect, the active ingredient in this situation. This isn't really hard to figure out. There's a reason that, you know, in the Civil War, when they were going to amputate someone's leg, they would, like, you know, get them drunk first. Booze makes you numb. So dudes who have trouble... Uh, coming too fast, can sometimes drink, and thus, thus it makes their dick numb because it makes the rest of them numb, and then they are able to go further into uncharted territory. That's really all that's going on here, um, and it sounds like this guy should probably not drink so much because it sounds like her his woman is a little bit irritated by having to take this for all those minutes and hours. I think 20 minutes is just fine for a session of coitus. I imagine most people would agree with me. Hi, Dan. I'm uh, calling on episode 376 where you mentioned that the average man can only last four minutes from when penetration starts. And uh, my comment is that isn't it kind of a basic tenet of the giving part of GGG that you should try and last longer for your partners, particularly if your partners are women who have multiple orgasms? I mean, it's not really that hard. If things get too hot, you just look away for a minute or close your eyes for a bit or think of something else in the case of emergency, thinking about grandma for a second to cool things off long enough to keep going. Um, anyway, this isn't a thing. It probably should be. Hey, Dan. I was calling about episode 376 about the woman who said that her relatives who were sexually abused did not act as if they were sexually abused. And I was abused for six years by a family member. And one of my family members, well, a lot of my family members say that they don't believe me because I'm doing too well in my life. Like, I was too successful in my life. And I have to tell you that that reaction from my family was more hurtful and more damaging to me than the original abuse. So thank you for your response to her. Hi. uh, I am calling in response to the woman who wants to have all of the semen inside of her. And you know what, hon? I can totally relate that is absolutely my fetish. And I'm a sex educator. I should know better. But here's the thing. What I do is I have two amazing, amazing primary partners that I go and get tested with every three months. I trust them with my life. Those two guys, they get to blow their loads in me whenever they fucking want. And you know what? It's incredibly hot even when they don't because I know they could. But don't let anyone else do it. That's how I stay safe. I stay fluid bonded with two trustworthy people. That way I can switch off. I can have two guys blow their loads in me, one right after the other. It's amazing. There are ways to do it that are sex positive, that are safe. Just don't go finding strangers and having stranger come all over you. That's not safe. That's not sex positive. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number if you have a question or comment for a future show. One of those future shows that we're putting together is a sex worker panel show. If you have a question particularly that you would like to have answered by a sex worker or a panel of smart and articulate and informed activist sex workers, 
give us a call with that question now, 206-201-2720. Also, one month from today in Seattle, a live taping of the Savage Lovecast at Seattle's historic Neptune Theater on Valentine's Day. We have tons of special guests, musical guests, smart and insightful guests, and we're going to have a blast, and you are invited. Go to StrangerTickets.com to get tickets to the live taping of the Savage Lovecast in Seattle on Valentine's Day. And remember, come to the Valentine's Day show, Buck First. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanceSavage. Follow Chris Mucarbell on Twitter at Chris. Mukarbel, M-O-U-K-A-R-B-E-L. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.